Thank you for joining us for episode five of The Leap, a video and podcast series brought to you by the Diabetes Family Connection, where we find inspirational folks who have stepped outside of their comfort zones, taken a leap of faith, all while navigating the highs and lows of life with diabetes. And hopefully by hearing some of their stories and experiences, you'll be inspired to take your own leap of faith and realize that the sky is the limit with type 1 diabetes. In today's episode, we sat down with Stephen England and Laura Dunn, two elite endurance athletes who have tackled some incredible feats in the world of ultra running and beyond, and they have done it all while living with type 1 diabetes. So let's go ahead and just jump right into today's episode. Well, y'all, I could not be more excited for tonight's episode of The Leap. Tonight, we are joined by two dear friends of mine that happen to be some of the most extreme endurance athletes that I know personally uh, that just also happen to be living with type 1 diabetes. So we are very excited to be joined by Stephen England and Laura Dunn. Uh, So with that being said, let's go ahead and just jump into introductions. We're going to be talking a lot about your um, experiences with endurance athletics. So leaving that aside, kind of give us the the elevator speech of what your life looks like. So where are you located? What do you do professionally? Uh, Laura, we'll start with you. Thanks, uh, Patrick. I'm excited to be on and chatting with you all. So I live in San Diego, California. I've been here from, for 10 years, um, moved out here from North Carolina a while ago. And I professionally work for um, in the tech industry and I do design research, which means I just try to understand what people think and feel when they're using, you know, apps, websites, things like that, shopping in a store and try to make those experiences better for them. So that's my day job. And then, yeah, like Patrick said, I run a lot of miles in my free time. <laughs> awesome. All right, Steven. All right. Let me try and top it. It's going to be tough. Uh, <laughs> Good to see you guys. Stephen England here. Yeah, I'm from England, so let's get that out of the way. I've been, <laughs> I've been in the US for 15 years, I think, maybe 16. I lose track. Uh, I live in New York City. I'm in South Harlem. I'm two blocks from Central Park, which helps with my running. When I'm not running, I am building. Uh, I'm, I'm a general contractor. We do high-end residential projects. We basically do gut renovation work for uh, super high-end clientele around Central Park and uh, you know, like Fifth Avenue and all that and Tribeca. And uh, yeah, we we build beautiful homes. So that's what I do when I'm not running uh, here or anywhere around the world. Awesome. We got both both sides of the coast, both ends of the coast uh, represented here. All right, because it's relevant, this podcast wouldn't exist if we weren't talking about diabetes. Uh, when were you diagnosed? What age were you diagnosed? How long have you been living with diabetes? And what do you currently use? What kind of technology are you using to manage your diabetes? Stephen, we'll kick it over to you first. Well, I was diagnosed when I just turned 14, so I'm 26 years in, giving my age away publicly, but there we go. It's out there. Um, so, um, I've lost, what's the next question? What, oh, what, what tech are you using? Tech. Uh, I like an insulin pump with no tube, and I like a CGM uh, based in San Diego. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe called Dexcom. Uh, All right. I've been, I've been doing the pump and the CGM thing for about eight years. And 
I always tell people the pump was a game changer, but the CGM was like, was the life change. I mean that the CGM data, not just in running, but day to day, uh, management, seeing my A1C come down, just, you know, all the, all the great stuff about that data. Laura knows this stuff way more than me. Uh, yeah, that's my, that's my tech game. I've heard people allude to CGMs as being the most important invention for diabetes since the invention of insulin. And I think I could probably agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right, Laura. I agree too, but not because I worked at Dexcom for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. Math. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was four years old. And so I've had it for almost, 32 years, which means I'm almost 36 in a couple of days. I hope you guys are throwing me a birthday party. Expect gifts. You can send them here. Um, And then I also use a Dexcom G6. And then I'm on the tandem pump that has the, oof, I've been out of the diabetes game for too long. It's the closed loop. I forget if it's called a hybrid. I don't know. It it changes your basal rates in the background. It's fantastic. Oh, the fancy one. I'm on the fancy one. Well, there's it's there's basal fun. IQ and then there's control IQ. Control, control IQ is the most IQ. awesome. Cool. Very cool. All right. Yes. Great. So how, not that labels are important, but how would you qualify yourself and your athletic pursuits? So I would consider myself a runner, but I probably run over the course of a year collectively, which you all seem to run in a weekend. So when someone asks you, what kind of athlete are you? What is your, what is your answer? What's your answer, Steven? I'm too modest to say anything different. I'm I'm a runner, but the funny thing about that is that's a really good question. Whenever I tell people, I saw my dentist last week and um, as I was going in, a friend of mine who just run a hundred miles was leaving and so, it was a small world in New York City. And she was blown away by my friend who just run 100. And she said, at this point, she knew that that was me as well. We spent about half hour at the dentist appointment talking about ultra running and what it means to run longer than a marathon. And her jaw was dropping. And I realized uh, when she was comparing her half marathon times to what I was doing, um, it didn't make any sense to her. So I get your point. Like, it is technically more than just being a runner and a runner in itself is amazing. I think I would probably label myself as an adventurer. Um, And I think, I think I say that because my last big race was Italy of last year, which was my hardest race, my most fun race. Everything about it was crazy. It was 200 plus miles, 80,000 foot of gain and and loss um, in about five days. And (laughs) Just during that process, I just knew it wasn't a race. After the first half day, you're looking around and all the people from different countries doing it with you, suffering and enjoying it all together. You just, you realize they're not competitors, they're more comrades. And it was this crazy, crazy fun, like survival excursion in the Italian Alps. And it was pure adventure the whole way. And yeah, that's what I I love doing the most. So I guess I'm an adventurer. I love it. I feel like that's much more encompassing than, than runner. What would you, what's your answer, Laura? Is it similar? It's, well, I mean, I'm like, so it's funny because I'm a researcher by trait, right? So as I'm listening to you both talk about it, I'm like, well, no, we're, we're all still 
runners because we run. It's just, what is the why, right? Like if you're running a 5k, there's a reason. And that doesn't make you any less of a runner than someone who runs, you know, crazy amounts of mileage. Um, in my opinion, because it's all still great. Right. And so I think it's hard like you can compare the different types of runners, but again, like I choose to run really long distances because it teaches me a lot about who I am as a person and the obstacles that I can get through. So if I like have this really low moment during a race and I realize that I can push past it and get through it, it, it makes normal life things that, you know, you face a lot easier. Um, or it gives you that perspective. I won't say easier. That's not true. I'm going to take that one back. But it gives you the perspective to be like, no, I can dig deep and I can do hard things and I can move forward in this. So I don't know. I still think we're all runners and I like just love like, we're all just one big happy family. There's, there's <laughs> enough for, there's enough room for everybody here in this runner world. Um, but I, I guess for me too, I've always been an athlete. I've always needed that kind of like like there's people who can meditate and I try to meditate as much as I can, but like, it's really hard for me because I just need that like rhythm of like the run or something when I've swam just to like get into that nice Zen mental state. So I don't know. That's my roundabout answer to who we are, but. I would dig you, it. Would you say it gives <laughs> you more, it gives you more confidence, Laura, in the real world? Like you said easy and then you can't stop yourself. But you think the word, is, that, is that a good word to use? confidence and also just being grounded in myself, right? Like I know me, I know what I need. What are some of those lessons that you learn and how can you take those into your like daily life? I think for me, it's just that it is confidence and, and trusting myself. I think that's the second one. We are, we are going to take a much deeper dive into a lot of this, but before just answer this for me, for semantics purposes, at what point does, a runner become an ultra runner? Is there a, a specific distance? Laura's on her key. Is that, is that, my, is that my turn? I, I took the, the, the casual- You're hiding with the, 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 the mugs. All right, I have to talk. <laughs> All right, I, I'll, I'll keep talking. Um, I think the official nerdy version of runner to ultra ultra runner is 26.2 miles so that 26.2 miles is a is a traditional marathon the point two is because the british people with the queen and some old history thing there about making it a weird distance but anyway um yeah ultra marathons anything longer so you normally find the races begin around a 50k um then they go 50 miles 100k 100 miles but there's also timed races. So you can do things like 12 hours, uh, 24 hours, multiple days. Um, it's really anything. There's just a, it's just a whole range of anything longer than that distance of 26.2.2. Okay. All right. Good to know. And we, we're going to take a dive into some of your beyond impressive racing portfolios. But I think, Laura, you kind of alluded to it earlier that sometimes when you look at athletes such as yourself, it, it can be hard to relate to you all because you hear about you all running, you know, hundreds of miles during one single event. And it's like, well, I can never do that. I can't even think about running a marathon, but everyone's got a point where they started. Right. So what, what did the infancy of kind of getting into this kind of adventure sport look like for you all? What, what was kind of the initial, maybe we'll even start like what kind of sports did you do growing up? We'll start with you, Laura. Okay. 
Um, so I, I actually started out doing dance. So I was like the cute little girl with the tap dance costume and like the big nineties hair bows and all of that. Um, and did that for a while. And then probably around middle school, I did a summer league swim team and had a lot of fun and, you know, like it was super competitive and I was pretty good. So I did swim for a while. And then I had shoulder injuries, so I switched to track and cross country in middle school and high school. Um, but I think the consistent thing for me is I never really played team sports. I always did something that was like, the, it, it had some type of endurance. And then running just was always like a consistent thing for me. I did triathlons for a bit, um, but was never really great a great cyclist. So. Um, because I was getting frustrated with just spending a lot of time and not feeling like I, I do like being competitive. Um, I switched to pure running and I think that spark was definitely ignited by Steven because I met him before I got into ultras and I was really more in the tri world. Um, and a couple others on team type one at the time, um, just were ultra marathoners and it always kind of piqued my interest that just going out there and going for such a long time. So, um, probably pretty cliche, read the book born to run and, um, got really curious about it. And then at work, there was an ultra marathoner who I finally, I was really nervous to like approach her kind of like what you're talking about right now. Right? Like I was a runner. I did half marathons, some marathons, 10 Ks, things like that. Um, and was that like, interest in ultras kind of was already in me. And so I like one day reached out to her and was like, can you take me to the mountains? Can I come running with you? And, and she took me under her wing and um, coached, well, not coached me, but like mentored me into this crazy sport. So that's kind of, but it took, I mean, it took long. It took a long time, like so many years and lots of injuries and coming back and you know, just running has always been a source of like calm and a way for me to process life. So I've always like, that's been my like core sport, I think. Awesome. All right. How about you, Steven? What, what kind of brought you to this world that you're living in now? What did it look like in its infancy stages? Yes, probably same as Laura, lots of dancing and swimming. <laughs> All right. Sparkly costumes, extra glitter. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of glitter, especially, yeah, purple and, yeah, I love that stuff. No, I've got lots of witnesses that I cannot dance and never have been able to, although I try. But that's not the, that's not the answer to my real question. Um, I think uh, going back as far as I can remember, which is, I don't know if I'm three or four years old, I'm guessing, I just remember I just didn't sit still. I just wanted to be in, like, my grandparents' back garden and just run around and kick a ball and that grew into obviously going to going to school and maybe a bit opposite to Laura I, I was a team sport person I mean my I guess around 10 years old eight nine ten into my teens my my only dream was to be a a football player which you guys would call soccer so we'll call it soccer for now but it's really football um and that was my thing. So I was doing, I was doing soccer and I was doing cross country. Uh, but I was really doing the cross country and the track and field kind of world to, to make me a, 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 I guess, to have the most endurance as possible when I played team sports. Uh, because a bit like Laura, I guess I can say now, 
later in life, I wasn't that coordinated. I think I thought I was, but really I was just a, I was just a big hustler about running on the pitch back and forth and tackling and passing and shooting and all that fun stuff in, in the game. But yeah, running was something that I almost couldn't shake off. And I was, uh, I was 10, we had to do a mandatory race in school. Um, there was a kid in the school called James. I was, I lived in Hong Kong for a few years. I just came back to the UK. So no one knew who I was. I mean, I didn't know who I was, I was 10. And um, James was definitely gonna win the race, right? Because he was the best at everything. But the story goes like, I'm in the woods near the finish line, I turn a corner, I see the back of James in sprinting, head back. I won the race. And that was like the light bulb moment, which I took into my kind of high school years of, uh, I was just good at cross country. And um, when you win races, it gives you confidence, especially at that age. As much as I tried to hate running, I was quite good at it. So I was doing that for uh, my local club in London, uh, my county and my school. And that was kind of, it kind of fizzled out a little bit after that, honestly. Like, I mean, late, late teens was definitely more of a not, not running as much, definitely winding down from team sports. Um, and I think that's where there was some sort of like transition into realizing that as you get a bit older, uh, this can happen when you're 18, 19, it can happen maybe early 20s. Team sports do kind of fizzle out and fade away unless you really, really want to keep going. And running was my way of staying healthy, both physically and mentally. And um, it's just the one sport that just never, ever went away. And uh, I moved to the States, like I said, 15 years ago, I think, 06. And I was just wanted to run in Central Park. It's one of my dreams to run in Central Park. So I did and just blew my mind how amazing the park was and the people, like how many runners there were, how many cyclists. It was just a frenzy of activity that I wasn't finding that lifestyle so much in London um, where I've been living for a few years. And yeah, jumped into the marathon kind of scene um, and it just kind of went from there. And then the, the, I guess the, the, the last bit about it is I don't know how else to say it, but I was doing marathons. I'd, I'd done London, I'd done New York, I'd done Chicago, Boston. I was, I was clicking up all the majors, like thinking I was going to do Berlin. And then Tokyo was kind of becoming the sixth major. And then kind of out of left field, a bit like Laura's story, I had friends running a hundred miles in the woods, in the mountains. And I thought they were completely insane. I thought that's ridiculous. And then I really thought about it on my own. And I was like, no, this is, this is amazing. And I watched, uh, I went to a film night in 2011, I think it was. And it was the film Unbreakable, which is the Western States documentary from 2010. It had runners like Killian Hornet, um, who Jeff Rose, I think won it. Had some, had Hal Corner, had basically all the, all the big names of, Scott Jurek was kind of part of that thing. So that documentary, as well as reading books like Born to Run, Ultra Marathon Man, Dean Carnassus, and just friends in my running community of New York that were doing longer uh, things, which I just, which didn't seem didn't seem possible, honestly. But once you like put your eyes on it and you really felt it, it got it just got exciting. So I watched that film, and long story short, I had a couple of drinks that night with some friends. I went home. 
and I signed up for level 100 like that night and I didn't really sleep very well because I knew that I was probably I just threw away lots of money for no I, I knew I wasn't really going to do it I mean that was my, that was my mindset um and obviously then I did go and do Leadville and I guess the rest is history amazing I've definitely had those nights where like oh like never go on ultra sign up after a night hanging out with friends and a couple drinks it's like the new shopping it's like a, yeah. yeah it just you just credit card yeah so let's i think this warrants letting the audience know what level you all are at competing at this point in your in your career so what's kind of the the, the most intense race you've taken part in at this point laura we'll, we'll start with you Ooh. Well, the most intense was, I mean, San Diego 100. Um, I'll say, though, I did Grand Canyon rim to rim to rim, and that was intense, climbing out of the rim. So, like, they both were intense for different reasons, but running 100 Ex Explain miles, what that is. I, I feel like there's going to be a lot of people that, that aren't familiar with it. Grand Canyon? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you basically run from one end of the Grand Canyon to the other, which is about 20 miles. You get up to the... And we started at the South Rim, so 20, 22 miles. Then you get up to the top of the North Rim, and then you run down, and then back, and then back up. And it's, I mean, I don't have the stats in front of me, but it's, it's a huge effort, um, but it's beautiful. It's just like weather can be pretty intense. Um, it can be pretty cold at the top and, and hot um, down at the bottom. We got lucky in that it wasn't too, too hot, but climbing back out, of the Grand Canyon and just you look up and you think you're getting closer to the top but you really aren't and it's just like it's a mental battle to to get there to, to finish and just to keep going um, and you see a lot of people like families that have done just like a small little hike and they all have energy and they're bouncing around and you're like dying um, so that was that was pretty intense but no the San Diego 100 um, was my most intense race so wow 101 or two miles it's not even a hundred they make you go more which happens what, what kind of time frame are we talking about here that took me a little over 25 hours all right just you a, know, you know just, just a day now just a day, just a day. Just a day. A over. steven yeah. i know you talked about it a little bit but let's let's take a deeper dive into uh the tour de jance my most fun and my longest race has been tour de jance which is fancy in Italian for saying tour of giants because it is the giant mountains of the Italian Alps. Um, it's technically, I guess, the most prestigious, longest trail race in the world. It's, the, it's been around for 10 years. And um, I'm not sure how many people finish it. Not that many, maybe like 50% finish rate, similar to like level 100. I like to do races where there's not a high finish rate, something about that scares and excites me all in one um so that's just a race that it's it's not even a race i can't even say the word race it, it it's, it's a it's a huge loop of the italian alps where you go up and down mountains into small villages all the people in the villages they they see your bib they know you're in this race they um if you finish it you're you're classified as a, a giant. You're, you're now, you're now a, a giant of, of, of the Tour de Giants. And while you're going around, you're treated like this kind of Greek kind of athlete or Roman athlete. It's, 
it's quite emotional because they're so passionate about it and they really want you to finish it. They're, they're giving you coffee, they're giving you pizza. This old lady bought me a, an, an ice cream halfway through and was hugging me and kissing me. And she's like 95 years old. It was fantastic. Um, so you kind of just, these stories that go with these, these uh, adventure races are just so great. And something about the ultra world, and it can be even a, it could be, a 50k if it's you know if you're really going for it. it hasn't got to be about a distance but the ultra world something about that it just tears you down to the to your to the bones to your to your true version of yourself i find the longer mm-hmm. I, the race i do the more i find out about myself and who i truly am both good and bad and i've got some regrets about you know maybe being snappy being grumpy and i look back at those times and thinking that's that probably is who I am, but it's not, I'm not, I'm not proud of it. But, and you, and I think you learn from that and you go into the next race wanting to be happier and more appreciative and just in, I think something about, it's just enjoying life. Um, I mean, look at this year with COVID in 2020, like what a, what a crazy year we're living through. So I think you just really appreciate just being alive and getting to do these exceptionally hard and scenic, and, but also like, meeting locals and making friends with like i met a, a guy uh called uh called biggie he lives in iceland and we're now really good friends from from tour de Jones. and another guy another type one actually for called, called um i want to say he's christian i should know his name he's a really good friend but we met on the trail we're pretty tired but he he lives in italy and um, so he's type one and we met just during the race so, um, so you just kind of meet people on all of these different um races that you put yourself in um i will also say it's not just a race that could be like the toughest experience i think what laura said is very true for me too like her grand canyon thing me and tiffany went to norway end of last year which looking back now is amazing because we got to travel before we got locked down and we did this point to point trail in bergen um it's like the west side of norway on the fjords and we only had four days there so we didn't get to like wait for like good weather like whatever 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 we got on that day we were doing this trail and it was horrendous it was it was raining it was foggy it was windy so we said oh we'll just go up from the hotel and just climb to the peak it was like this kind of peak peak kind of numerous peaks along around this city but you're really out in the wild it's like 15 miles one five so nothing too crazy right but after five, six miles, we're the only ones out there and the wind's picking up. You can't see like 10 meters in front of you. You can't see these giant cans to get from point to point. Uh, we're looking at my phone, which is getting soaked. It's just like 40 mile per hour winds, like sideways. And we're like hiding behind cans and then we're sprinting. I mean, it's not to be too dramatic, but like we were literally thinking like we may have to get res- rescued if we even could get rescued. It was, it was actually pretty scary. And so I guess what we just learned from that is even though you think you're experienced, which we both are, um, respect the mountains and respect the weather because they are always stronger and more dominant than we as humans will ever be. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess the point of the story is you may think a hundred miles is going to be the hardest thing you do, but it could just be that 15 mile run on a bad weather day that may, may, may hurt you the most. So, go out and enjoy the trails and be and you know be an adventurer be a runner but also yeah 
need to be prepared. And that day we, we just got lucky, I think. I can relate to that a little bit where I was running in my neighborhood one time and I took a wrong turn on a street and was lost in the neighborhood for probably 20, 20 or so minutes, but then Google, Google Maps. Bad <laughs> joke. Bad I, joke. I, I, I'm, was, I'm was, having... was the wind. Yeah. The, it was a pristine day. It was beautiful out. I'm having PTSD it. from coming down Mount Whitney after hearing Steven's story. I don't know. That yeah. was really yeah. freaky. Yeah. Uh, Laura and I climbed to Mount Whitney together. I guess it was two. Oh, this was when, this was in your uh, your famous fifty fifty. It was. It was. What made you? So what put you on the stage? It is. It is. Well, some might say, in some <laughs> circles, you all are at a point where you're not. It's not just cool that you're doing these races because you have diabetes. I mean, you all are standing on podiums, despite the fact that you have diabetes. You are beating competitors that that have this that don't have this you know extra layer of complexity in their lives that they have to deal with and i think it's it's amazing that you all are able to do this and i want to shift gears a little bit and talk to diabetes management while you're doing these races when you all are looking at doing long endurance races what are you thinking about specifically when it comes to diabetes management to, to begin to prepare for something like this. Laura, we'll start with you. Okay. So it requires for me a lot. It's okay. So it's totally dependent on the time of day, but you're, we're talking about like events, not just like training, because I think like there's things that are interesting about both. So like regardless of what it is, whether it's a run after work or a race, like the prep goes, like the prep takes more time than you probably think. And so some of my, I don't say worst, but some of my more difficult and challenging blood sugar related runs are because I just like make the assumption that I can go from like a full day of work, having meetings and not really paying attention to what's going on or, or changing my insulin or eating more, and then just go out for a run and then I'll like plummet. And so it's like, you know, I think Steven kind of alluded to this, this before, like you take things from your race that you learn about your life, but also what you learn about your diabetes too. So for me, the biggest thing is to think through like for a race, when am, I, when am I going to get up? What am I going to eat? How am I going to adjust my insulin needs? Cause I want to come in, you know, a little bit higher to give myself buffer room. And then, you know, it's interesting. I actually struggle more with nutrition than I do with blood sugar management because my body is like really sensitive to all the different types of gels or foods that are, we have at aid stations. So I have to be really careful about having too much variety during races. And I actually go more off of like, if I eat food, like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or anything like more substantial, it's gotta be early in the race. So like the first 20 miles of like anything over 50 miles. And then after that, I just go straight to gels and then um, sometimes liquid, like Tailwind is a brand I use. So just really consistent nutrition wise. And then I'm looking at my CGM the entire time to modify what I, you know, obviously I want a certain number of calories per hour, um, but I'll tweak that a little bit based on where my blood sugar is headed. And then, you know, I'm not as scientific about this as probably a lot of people are. I kind of go by like my gut and what's worked for me in the past, but it's making sure that I have enough energy to sustain the effort that I'm doing 
And then watching my blood sugar on my CGM to see, am I going up? Am I going down? Am I steady? Like, do I need to adjust and like do a tiny little bit of insulin? Cause I look like I'm going too high. And if I ever give insulin, it's like just a little tiny bit um, because I've made the mistake of giving too much and then crashing. And then you're just, you know, bouncing up and down. Um, most of that's in training. And then, yeah, I'm not very scientific at this. I just, my biggest thing has been nutrition and like stomach issues. So I just make sure that I'm really clued into having fewer choices and more consistency with the gels and then the liquid type of nutrition that I'll take in. So, um, but I always carry way more supplies than I ever need. I mean, I'll go out for a six mile run and I'll have two or three gels sometimes because I've had to take that many before and just like crashed big time. So I'd rather be overprepared and have the extra stuff on me than not and be caught like begging my friends for gels or, you know, having to shuffle home um, or stop at like a gas station or something like that. So, but I imagine you're experimenting kind of with yeah. all these different things while you're training at, and you kind of go thing. into the race. You yeah. have to, right. The race for the most part for me, isn't the complicated thing. It's the training. And when you have a really hot day and you're dehydrated mm. and then your blood sugar is shooting up or you totally screw up your breakfast and you're low or it's, Tuesday and diabetes just decides to be a jerk, like, you know, whatever is going on. Like, I think that's where I learn all the lessons so that when I do get to race day, I'm way, I'm paying way more attention to things than I probably do on a typical training run. Cause I'm more like laid back about it. Um, and the race days typically go pretty well for me. And if they don't, I'm just, I try to be really patient with myself and, you know, take a break to walk or drink extra water, things like that. I'm going to build on it a little bit before I, I pass it over to you, Stephen. But when you're training for these things, I can't imagine that you're, you're running 100 miles to train for a 100-mile race. So mm -hmm. I would imagine the event itself looks significantly different than, maybe not significant, oh, but it looks yeah. pretty I different. Oh, yeah. I mean, 100 is, is way different. And I think that, that race is where I learned some of my most valuable lessons in terms of, like, I'm trying to think. I think it was mile 70 is where my stomach started turning. I was having a harder time like keeping food down. I had gotten sick. My sensor was reading completely inaccurately. I had to switch to, you know, testing my blood sugar manually because it either was giving me no readings or saying I was 50 when I was like way higher than that. I had crew and pacers who were freaked out about my blood sugars. And I'm like, no, I know my body. Like I'm not low. I'm not high. I'm just this thing is not, we can't trust it anymore. So I think that's where like, yeah, anything you learn from training um, totally goes out the window in those moments because you can't really prepare for those kinds of conditions. And that's where having spare, you know, like having a backup meter is so important because what do you do if your CGM is completely like toast? in the middle of a race, having a backup pump site in case your pump site falls off, having a syringe um, and insulin in case all of that, you know, like if you get sweaty, right? So things could fall off. Um, I do remember there was one time that was pretty scary during a training run where both my CGM, it was very cold outside. So it was like snowing 20 degrees um, in the San Diego mountains. We actually get some snow and neither my pump 
I'm sorry, neither my CGM nor my meter were working. So I had to just go like straight off of feel for that for like a couple right. hours until things got warm. And I'm like, you know, you're worried, but you kind of have to go back to like, okay, do I feel okay? I think I feel okay. I think I'm good. But like, yeah, you know, bringing, I guess, I mean, we don't get snow too much, but like having some kind of like neoprene case for a meter so it doesn't get that cold or keeping it right on your body. Like you really have to think through all these different types of conditions when things like that happen, because you don't want to be stuck, you know, freaking out. Like what's my blood sugar and it's 20 degrees and nothing's working. It's scary. So, yeah. And then you just, you work through it. You just keep going one step at a time and you take one blood sugar reading at a time and one sip of water at a time. And you just, you, you keep going and you figure out what you're made out of. Are you having different experiences, Stephen? Are there a lot of parallels with your own training and, and events? No, I think it's very, very similar. What Laura's saying is kind of hitting home and from my experiences too. Um, I mean, one topic she talked about was packing spare kind of kit, like technology we touched on a bit. But yeah, I mean, I kind of have like, it's almost like a first aid kit, but it's not for first aid, it's for diabetes. So I'll carry that glucose monitor with test strips and the, whatever that pen thing's called. What is that? Pricker. I don't even know the word. Lansing device? Yeah, that guy. Lansing. I just bought one today from CBS. Um, yeah, that, so you carry that. I carry a spare insulin pod and uh, maybe even a spare CG, uh, a spare Dexcom, which is bulky, but maybe I'll carry that in my, in my hydration pack as well as lots of nutrition, as Laura said, and, and, uh, and my hydration, my, my drinks in the front and my, my bladder. But uh, there's something to be said about the temperature too. Um, yeah, like there's definitely failures. Like I've had so many, I've got lots of failure stories for you, probably more than successes. And they, they're great looking back. Um, like Western States 100 is a very, it's the most, it's the oldest 100 miler in the world. It's in California. I've been lucky to run it twice. Both, both years it's over 100 degrees. I mean, just insanely hot. Um, I don't really know what 100 degrees feels like normally because I'm from England, but I have felt that in California, it's brutal. So I've got this ice bandana around my neck and it's just dripping down, keeping me cool, you know, keeping my, my neck and all my main body parts as cool as possible. But guess what it's also doing? It's peeling off my, my Dexcom and my pump site and they're failing. And then, and you have to like get a plan. You've got to, you've got to replace it. Uh, or you got to run to the next aid station where your crew is and then they have it in the car and you can replace it there. Um, I did a, and also the, the opposite of that is extreme cold. Like when you get, I definitely had those sites when things just fall apart because they just fail when they're cold. I mean, I'll, we did a stage race in the Himalayas. Me and Tiffany ran this together and my pump just started beeping or just that constant beep, which you really like, no, it just tells you like, you have to look, look after this now because I'm so annoying. You just, all right, all right fine. You're just not, not even beeping, you're just, just a beep. So I stopped at the side of a trail, she ran ahead and then a bunch of people um, obviously caught me and ran past and I'm literally changing a pump site with needles flying and blood and all sorts of stuff. And um, it was, I remember it because not one person and these people were super nice we got along really well but in that moment they all just ran past me 
And in the ultra scene, everyone's really friendly, right, Laura? But in this situation, no one said to me, hey, are you, are you okay there? Like, are you anything I can help you with? I'm like, no, I'm just, you know, I'm just doing my little like needle thing, like pump change in the middle of, middle of the Himalayas. But no yeah, no, 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 no big deal. And I think that story is all about um, staying calm and not panicking. And that's, that's a, also a, such a key trait. It's a key trait for diabetes management. I think it's a key trait for running super long distances because um, they take a long time to, to, to not quit and to get to the finish line. So there's a, there's a skill in there about just having a level head, knowing you can have ups and downs and having this kind of composure both in your like heart rate and your head to not lose your mind because, oh my God, I got diabetes, you have and that's not fair. It's not how I see it. It just, when I explain that I'm a type one diabetes adventurer, as I now call myself, I say to people, we all have to choose our nutrition plan, what, what we like to drink, if it's tailwind, if it's noon hydration, whatever it is. Uh, we all choose our shoe, our shoes we like, our clothing, the weather chooses itself, the course is the same. Um, we may look at pace, maybe less so in 100 miles, but pace and heart rate and things, we'll have the same data. But the one thing, one extra thing I have that you probably don't have or haven't got anything similar to is I'm looking at my glucose. I'm looking at that CGM constantly. And, and my management for that in a race is very much, if I see a hundred and something in a race of anything, it could be a half marathon, which is hard because that's really fast. And I don't even check my CGM. That's more of a, that's more of a goal. That's a more of an experience thing, but let's say a marathon onwards where I can actually check CGM. If I'm in that hundred to something, so hundred to one nine nine range, I'm super happy. I love being there. I've heard stories where people say, Oh, I was one, I was 180. I felt terrible. I can't relate to that. I honestly can't. I, I, for me, 180 feels like 100. I mean, I can definitely feel 70 and I can feel, I can feel 250, 300 for sure. But um, the goal to me is when I pick, when I pick a crazy, hard, fun, long mountain race and you get that elevation profile and you see it doing that up and down and you think, oh, it's probably not that hard, but it's like super up and down, right? So my, my, my goal of diabetes is don't copy that. Whatever that looks like, your diabetes CGM, cannot be anything like that and if I can achieve that in the race have a good time and finish it it's been a good it's been a good experience awesome awesome so I think a lot of people probably have familiarity between or within kind of the idea or the realm of marathons or half marathons where there's water stations and aid stations uh you know every six miles or so people probably don't fully understand how it works with kind of these ultra races so obviously when you're running, you don't want to be carrying a lot of stuff, but it sounds as though that you will all do carry quite a bit of gear in your kit. Um, how does it work? You also kind of alluded to a crew. What kind of things are you planning ahead of time? What, do, what is your crew thinking about ahead of time when you're running these ultra races? We'll start with you, Laura. So... Um, a couple different types of companies make these vests. So they're like 
really super lightweight backpack vests that are pretty close to your body and you can fit, there's a ton of pockets. So you can fit your phone, gels, bars, you know, whatever you want within reason, right? You can't put too much. And then you can either put water bottles in the front or a bladder in the back or a combination of both. And then there's space in the back typically for, you know, random things like you're in the woods, you want to bring toilet paper. Um, sometimes, like Steven said, spare diabetes supplies, depending on the weather, you can have clothing. Like Some of the packs are so big that you can, they, they expand where you could put, you can put lots of clothing in it too as well, yep. which is super, can be useful depending on the race. Yep. Yep. So, and you know, those packs are great. I think I typically carry a lot more when it's just me doing a training run because I'm self-supported versus when you're racing, you really only need to carry what you think you need to the next aid station. And depending on the race, I mean, they are either, I don't know, Stephen, four miles to like not, and they're usually not more than nine miles apart. Sometimes they are depending on like the it's length of the race. Four, overall. four and nine. I like four it. Four to nine, right? I think so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not four to nine, yeah. depending on the race. And sometimes four miles is a lot because you're climbing, climbing, climbing. So like it takes just as long as to do the four miles as the nine. Um, but yeah, the goal kind of is to plan out the race, look at the aid stations and try to assess how much you think you're going to need between each one. And then when you get to the aid station, they have things like fruits, like bananas or they'll have pretzels or potatoes. It's random like hodgepodge of things. You could probably just Google like ultra marathon aid station and see kind of like it's just a big table full of tons of different types of food. Um, and then they'll have things like Coca-Cola, Gatorade, or not Gatorade usually, but like Tailwind, um, ginger ale, things like that, and then water. So you can refill everything, right? So it's like your refill stop. And then depending on the length of the race, sometimes you can have your own special bag called a drop bag where you put things that you might want. So your special items, and that could be your favorite drink, um, different types of gear, to switch things out if you need to. Sometimes for really technical courses, you use poles to help out with that. Um, and then let's see, you asked about crew. So I think this is one thing that I always really spend a lot of time with my crew on is just making sure that they have a general understanding of what type one diabetes is and doing that conversation like, at my home or after a run and I bring all the devices and I make them take notes or I'll give them notes or like whatever they want to do. Right. But just so they have a good understanding of what to do because they run with me and they see me taking care of my diabetes and they have a general understanding of it. But, you know, you definitely want people that can help you think when your brain kind of goes sideways after you've been running for hours to know like, okay, I need this diabetes supplies or this or that, and they can check on you. Um, and one of the things too, that you can have in these races is a pacer. So someone who's running with you. And I think, and I feel like we've talked about this too, Steven, like at the end of a race, you kind of get grumpy and frustrated and just having another person there to remind you to check your blood sugar and see where you're at. Because I think you lose that motivation at the end of the race. You're just like, I'm done with this. Like, I'm done with diabetes. I'm done with it all. And I just want to be like over it. And uh, so half, having somebody. Halfway, halfway through, I'd say I'm kind of done with it. It's, yeah. It, yeah. 
So having that person, whether it's, it is a pacer or a crew that's like following you along and seeing you at certain points in the race to check in on you and just have that reminder of like, Hey, you also have this thing. Like, how are you doing? Where's your arrow headed? What's your blood sugar is really nice. Even if you're like grumpy at them and like, I can manage my own diabetes kind of turn into a toddler. I think halfway through the race, I'd have to say. So from how, experience of having a toddler. Well, he's not a toddler anymore. A toddler that runs a hundred miles. <laughs> yeah. How how frequently are you syncing up with your with your crew team, Stephen? So yeah, I think it just depends on the race, and uh, a lot of the races we do are on the trail. They're more trail wilderness type races than roads. It's again kind of an appeal for me of why I love it because you see places in the world that you can only get to on two feet. Um, so the crew vehicle, uh, which is normally a rental car, unless someone lives Sam racing in California and it was San Diego, then I would probably ask her to be my crew and she would bring her car. Yeah. Um, so that car is normally going to four or five of the 10 plus aid stations of a hundred mile race. So you may see them every 18, 20 miles. Uh, it's not a consistent mileage. It all depends on where the course goes. You know, where's, where's the road access to the, to the trail is kind of the answer. So you have like these mini aid stations, not really called that, but I guess what I mean by mini is that's where you have to like, there's volunteers and you have to like know what you want from, from there to grab and throw your trash out. If you can remember to do that, which if you can, it's, it takes a lot of memory. <laughs> it's foggy. But uh, yeah, you're, the, the crew is amazing. I mean, my crew is, um, has always kind of been, I've always had type one diabetes people in my crew um, as much as I can. Um, I just like them to be crew and pacer because I think it's a special thing to share our passion for running as well as, um, I guess, just understanding type one. Um, and we all kind of talk about it before the race, like Laura alluded to. Um, Tiffany is crew chief because she's a great crew chief and she's the boss of all that. And then the other people will be, uh, someone will be, someone will be in charge of ice. Someone will be in charge of sunscreen. If it's one of those kind of really hot races, uh, if I've got a third or fourth person, they may be getting me refills of my drinks um, or some food I want. Um, but basically, yeah, just kind of, sit down at a chair or especially later in the race, you definitely get more fatigued and you spend more time at aid stations and everyone's kind of got a role. It's kind of, I look at it like it's a, it's a very unfancy formula one pit stop crew. We don't, we take, we take more than two seconds, but we have more fun. It's, there's definitely some like stupid jokes about how, you know, people are like, Oh, you look great. And you're like, no, I don't. But, <laughs> Like, you're almost there you're like no i got 45, i got 45 miles to go. <laughs> thanks but i guess if you're new to the sport you may want to believe that but i guess i'm an old i'm an old eight nine year ultra runner so i know i know better to believe that but it's so much fun it gives you such it gives you such energy boost to run in and see your crew and with your pacer and if you're there if you're there ahead of the time that you think you're going to be there it can also be fun to like beat your crew to the age stop and then like get out of there. They feel really guilty. And I've done it before as crews where I've been late and you feel terrible. You feel like you feel trashy and dirty, but it's really as a runner in a sick way, 
it's kind of fun to like get there and get out before they come. You're like, they're going to be so upset. And you're like, you know that you're, you may, well, you may not be doing well because you're probably going too fast. It may, it may hurt you down the road. But that's kind of, that's um, in a nutshell, I went way off in tangents there, but that's kind of how the crew works in eight stations. And I'll leave you with this. I think the more people you can have with you to support you, and then you should do that for your friends and uh, when, when it's their turn to, to run these things, just do it. If they mm-hmm. say, will you be, do you want to be crew for this race? Just say yes, because it's just, they're so much fun. Like these are like some of the most fun things I've done in my life. And I have so many fun stories, not just running, but being crew for people. Um, just the lack of sleep, sleeping in a car, or you know, if you're, if you're the crew, uh, getting lost, miss, missing your runner. I mean, all these stories, you, re- you remember these forever. And then mm-hmm. this is just like cool. It's a cool part about being an ultra runner, about being in that, in that bubble. Yeah, probably a unique definition of the word fun, but we'll go with it. (laughs) Stephen, you you kind of alluded to one of your stories earlier, so we'll start with Laura on this one. What would you say is the hardest lesson you learned? So let me rephrase. What what would you say is the lesson, the most important lesson you learned the hard way that you have taken with you moving forward? I don't, I will never eat watermelon during a race again, ever. (laughs) You got you to elaborate on that. I know, I will. I was just letting that sit with you for a little bit. Um, yeah, so I think that's when, uh, so San Diego 100, I um, was having a really, like I had some ups and downs throughout the day, but that was kind of expected. And like, I knew I was going to have, like, it was going to be a journey, right? Um, but like mile 50, maybe mile like 45, I just turned on. Like I picked up my pacer and she was like, oh my God, I'm, I've been running 50 miles and I'm going to drop her. Like I was just feeling it. I was feeling really good. So we get down to the bottom of this climb. I'm at an aid station. I grab some things. And one of those was watermelon and we start the climb back up. And I just like, that's when my stomach started to turn. And I lost, sparing you gory details, but it was a really hard mile 60 the next 30 miles were really hard and i went from like being a little bit okay like that's where my sensor started shutting down i was having a hard time keeping things down but i knew i needed to get nutrition in because it was like totally uncharted territory for me i had never run 100 before and um i got to a really good point of being able to eat and then i switched pacers and my new pacer who i had told at the beginning like push me like i want to do well in this i want to go like you know, make me work. Um, and I think I knew in that moment that I shouldn't be pushing myself because I was just had eaten some food and like was feeling okay. And then, um, but, but I listened to him because I was, you have this like, you know, you're wonky 80 miles into a race. So you're supposed to trust your pacer. But at the same time, it was also like, no, I, I, I need to slow down. I need to let this like digest. Anyways, didn't trust myself, didn't take my own advice, like got really sick, got to the next aid station, was facing some like mild hypothermia, couldn't keep anything down, like sat down for 20 minutes. Like I think everyone has this story in an ultra where like you are super close to calling it or someone calling it for you because you're just in really, really rough shape. And so I finally, I think they found me an extra wet shirts that I put on. I had like 
five layers on at this point in time because it was super cold. Um, and I think that was the only reason that I got out of the chair. And then from then on, I was in front and I dictated the pace and it was one step at a time, one tiny sip of water at a time that turned into like a bigger sip that turned into a gulp that turned into, oh, I could have a little bit of Coca-Cola and try that out. So you're like, oh, let's try like a couple potatoes and like maybe shuffle jog a little bit. So is this like, and I think I talked about this at the beginning, like it was that massive low. Like I hated everybody. I was in such a dark place, but I was able to kind of like leaning on my crew and my pacer, like get up and just go one tiny little step at a time. And I finished and I had, I think at that point, like 15 miles left. So it wasn't, you know, an insubstantial, uh, uh, minor distance um, at that point in time. So I don't know, biggest lesson learned, trust myself. I know myself better than anyone else. And, you know, yes, others are there to help you and lean on them when you need to. But if you're, if you're like internal radar is saying, don't do this, like trust yourself. Can you eat watermelon now? Not when running, but yes. I <laughs> awesome. How about you, Steven? What, what is the one lesson you learned the hard way, the hardest lesson you learned the hardest way that you have taken with you uh, ever since? Well, I can think of a really wild story but I think this happens a lot. We talked about it so far is that we get this kind of brain fog when you run these long races and not just brain fog. Like I don't know about you, Laura, I just get, I get lazy where I know I should check my CGM more, but it's just like, it's just such an effort. That sounds, that sounds insane to think, you know, you need to check your numbers like on a regular basis to have great control and perform to your highest, but you're so fatigued you start to check less and less like you i mainly check at every a station which may be every hour and a half rather than every 20 minutes from the beginning of the race and there's a story that i can think about where unfortunately my blood sugar was matching the elevation of the race <laughs> and shamefully uh, for various reasons, but that was fatigue is definitely a factor. Um, and it was a UTMB, which means it means ultra trail de Mont Blanc. It's a, it's a huge hundred mile race around three countries, uh, starts and ends in Chamonix, France. You go into Italy, into Switzerland and back around. And that race is brutal. I mean, the marketing team, I, commend them for like wanting me to do it because it was so exciting to watch the the marketing of the of the race and the the music and like, oh this is great i'm gonna be like that person no it's not <laughs> like that. it's it's just so, when you're actually doing that race and you're on your own and you're feeling like death it's like yeah this is the real ultra trail de mont blanc when you're on your own and you're just struggling and i was around mile 70 rain's coming down i'm at an aid station um, my parents are there, uh, my sister, uh, Tiffany, and we're in this tent, but I just didn't want to leave because the rain is just battering this tent. But I've been there for probably an hour already, just changing clothes and having a, probably a little nap on the bench, getting some food, but just really just not 
not doing great and did some insulin for for that a station break right which is you know to, trying to get a lot of carbs in while i'm sitting down makes a lot of sense probably having some soup to warm me up that kind of stuff anyway i finally like said okay i've been here way too long i need to get going or i'm never going to finish this race so i better just go and off i go with my waterproofs rain is just torrential i've got to do this crazy three mountain pass thing from mile 70 to basically the end um this is at night time and and I, and I leave and I've got my trekking poles, as Laura talked about. I use my poles a lot in mountain races because they really help up and down. And just felt terrible. Within like 20 minutes of leaving the A station, just getting absolutely battered. Like, you know, my waterproofs are completely failing. Feel terrible. I think at that point, my CGM and my spare one had both failed. So I was doing blood tests, I recall. Just, so I go under this like bush. I do a blood test to see where I'm at. And it's pretty, I mean, it's literally one of the highest readings I've ever had. It was like crazy high, it was like five something, right? Oh, high. Man. And I realized at that moment in time that the only way it could have got that high as well as, well, two reasons. One, I was getting lazy checking, so I was getting so tired, but that aid station where I thought I did insulin for all that food I just consumed, like chocolate milk and pizza and all, you know, carb, carb, carbs, no insulin had gone in, didn't take the insulin. So mm. I just had, I just had so much food like just before and my sugar um, just went way, way off. So because of that, knowing that number, um, took a load of insulin and decided because I felt so, so bad that that was a great, great time just to mm. like chill. I had a nap under the bush, which didn't really do much, but just off the trail, I napped for like half an hour just because I knew that, you know how like, if you want to raise your sugar with, you know, glucose, it's pretty quick, right? But when we're high to bring it down, it takes a long time. I'm like, well, I might as well just use this as a time to nap because I feel that now I know why I feel bad. It just felt like hundred times worse. Yeah. So I nap and, um, and then yeah, after like half an hour, I was like, okay, I better get going. So it seemed, it seemed more safe to get, to get going with my trekking poles in the lightning and the rain. And, uh, and also just to, this can be a good and bad thing, but I thought by just moving my body to like exercise would also help bring it down. I know sometimes it doesn't work when you're so high, but um, yeah, that was, that was rough. I mean, that was one of my roughest kind of glucose stories. Um, but I did really like, at that point, I did really work hard to uh, get up and over the mountains. And I remember the next aid station, um, it was down to like around 200 or something, which at that point in time was like, okay, that's great. Obviously, on its own, that would be that's a little bit too high. So, yeah, try your best not to be that high ever, um, especially in 100 miles. Um, and also, like, there's been other things where you just, you know, you don't want to be low either, right? Because that's also, it's terrible because you have no energy. In a flip of it, it can be a mini bonus to be a little bit low, not low, low, but just a little bit, because now you're forcing yourself. Like Laura, Laura talked about this a lot. One of the hardest things about ultra running um, is the nutrition. It's about convincing yourself to like put the fuel like in the car to move it, to, to move the wheel forward. Like it's so simple talking about it, but once you're 
in the moment and you feel terrible and your stomach's churning and you just feel like I want to quit or just not, I want to quit, but just, I feel immensely bad. That's the hardest thing to do is, is to consume the food. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm rambling, but that's my long story about don't go high in UTMB. At what point does it, does it not matter how much of a physical athlete you are? And it, it is strictly mental. Is there, is there typically a point in the race? Is there a certain mileage or it just, it doesn't matter how you know, fit you are or how much you've trained and it's all mental. I think it gets really mental when you have elements involved. Like, I think that's a pattern that I've noticed. If it is cold or rainy or windy or really hot and like, it's not like it as at any of those extremes, right. To me, that's when it shifts real mental because no matter how strong you are physically, you have everyone around you is facing that like same type of battle and everyone's suffering. And like, I don't know, like, I think that mental fog, I just had this in a race a couple of weeks ago where I was so cold. It wasn't a long race, but I was cold to the point where like, I couldn't think straight and my body was just like tensing up really bad. Um, and then it just becomes like, just focus on one foot in front of the other, look at the trail. Like, don't try to think too many things. Just like get, keep moving, keep moving, get through it. So I don't know if you think like, I don't know that there's like a rule to the distance. I don't know if there is either. I was, I was going to say mile 20, but I don't think that's even the right answer. I think you're right. I think it's the elements. Like there's something about ultra running, which is to me, it's like a, it's, it's a puzzle. It's always, a, it's, and it's always a new puzzle. You mm -hmm. can't, even if you go back and do the same race the following year, it's not the same puzzle. So you're going into it, you think you know what's going to happen, um, but you actually don't. So you have to solve this, this kind of game as you go along. Um, and you don't get that in the road running scene. You don't, I mean, you can, but not the same. Like if you're running a half marathon and you've trained for it over 12 weeks and you want to run seven minute miles, then you kind of like put your Garmin on and you just, every mile you're like seven, 658, 702, 705, seven, like, and then you get to the finish and you PR. I mean, that's all, that's all great. That's great. And, and obviously what, what throws that off is, you know, maybe bad nutrition, bad weather, whatever, but there's so many more elements that will occur and you can't, you just can't think of them all. It's impossible. Um, you have to know something's going to go wrong and you have to know that however, however bad it gets, it does always get better. And that's something beautiful about ultra running. When you're so, so down on your luck, it will always get better. Because if you're so bad at mile 99, well, guess what? At mile, at mile 100, you're going to feel fantastic. Mm -hmm. you finished. Mm -hmm. Just, it's so much mindset. It's a, I, think, I, think the whole, I think so much of this sport is mindset. I think, I think so much diabetes management is mindset. Mm -hmm. I think too, like, you can totally apply that to regular, like you're training for a 5k and you're supposed to go do like a two mile run around the block, but it's pouring rain or you don't feel like it or whatever is going on. You make up a million excuses, right? Yeah. Not do it. And it's those days where you say, okay, well, I'm going to do it anyways, because this is my goal and I'm going to feel better or whatever your reason is. Those runs to me are more meaningful than the ones that go really well, because you, it is that like you're pushing over that mental barrier, whatever it is. So again, I think, yeah, 
any, any kind of obstacle, whether it's the elements or your day or how you're feeling or any of that. I had a, I had a run like last week where I just did not want to go. I was in a sour mood. I was kind of tired and I decided to do it anyways. And it ended up being a really good run and I went longer than I thought. So it's like that, just getting past that barrier. I agree. A racer training. We don't, I don't think I talk about this hardly ever. And I think that's a great point to share, Laura. It's like a lot of my runs in the week, even on the weekend, on Saturday, we went upstate New York to go on, on a trail run. And I didn't want to go on a Saturday. Like that's like my favorite day of the week to run. But I just was like, I don't really want to go. And I changed clothes and kind of like forced myself to get ready. And then we ran like 15 miles over three hours. And felt alive and fantastic and had a great day but there's something about like yeah even even people like us who listeners may think oh these but these guys run 100 miles so they always they're always happy they always want to go running that's not true at all there's many many days that it's really hard to get out the door but i always know that once i do start after like a mile or two i kind of find my flow most of the time but i definitely know at the end of my run if it's a three miler um, or 10 or whatever it is, doesn't matter the distance, like the end of that run, that training run or that race, whatever, like you feel, you feel great. You feel purpose and there's some joy to it. So it's, that's a big challenge. Definitely a big challenge. Yeah. It's really, um, that was one of my questions that you both answered. The, the training is more than just physical. You're, you're actually mentally training as you prepare for these races as well. And it's just a matter of telling yourself to do something that you don't necessarily want to do. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think we have a lot of, I mean, that's the other thing. We're not, we're not pro athletes. We have, we have full-time jobs. Laura has a son. Um, we all have different factors in our life, which make it great and also hard and complex. And, you know, there's happy and sad moments of every day. And we, we kind of struggle and there's a, there's a constant like, tug of like being happy and being appreciative to being like maybe a little bit down about things too so we're just i think we're just human beings that love we just found what we love doing and you haven't got a love running you haven't got a love running ultra running but you do have to find a passion um to help you have your best life living with type 1 diabetes before we kind of move into our last segment here i do kind of want to talk about how everyone has been handling this global pandemic in their own unique ways. And Stephen, you actually made national news back in April for your unique way of handling the global pandemic. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you made headlines? Yes, I do. In yes. New I've York. Been, I've been very British and having a tight upper lip and not saying, why wasn't this the first question? <laughs> because, and also it was, it was global news because BBC, global news. BBC, World, BBC World ended their segment on, on, on me. It was truly. Um, yeah, I, I decided that I would run a, uh, what was then kind of one of the first virtual things, but I did a, I did a virtual marathon on my rooftop uh, the same day as when Boston Marathon should have taken place on Patriots Day in April. And... I figured out by putting four cones down on my shared rooftop, I should say, but it was early in the morning, so no one was upset. And <laughs> I ran, uh, 
I ran 1100 and something loops to run a marathon. Um, and luckily I did FaceTime, a uh, Facebook live to keep me accountable. So I wouldn't, wouldn't bail on the, on the boredom. But yeah, uh, a reporter picked it up at New York Post and then it kind of snowballed into this thing where crazy me ran, ran the Boston Marathon uh, by staying at home because that was a huge thing at the time, you know, stay at home, you know, keep this COVID thing down. We didn't know anything about it then, not, not very much. Um, that was how I handled the pandemic then. I've not done any more rooftop marathons since for the record. I've been running, been running with my mask on and outside and, you know, in small groups at most would um, you run another rooftop marathon you know when they had the postponed <laughs> when they had that's an up, easy question Stephen. the answer is no the answer is yes and <laughs> but i just haven't i just haven't done it yet and i may wait for the snow because then i could do okay it. yeah snow angel finish Stephen, are you currently seeing a mental health professional or <laughs> between me and my healthcare provider and I recommend you do the same for your own needs. All right, we're going to end with some rapid fire questions, but before we get into those, if someone's oh, looking... Hasn't, hasn't Laura lived, with, lived through COVID? What's she been doing? Oh, gosh. Yeah, well, how have you been coping? What, what rooftop, rooftop have you been running on? I thought we were going to end there because I'm not doing that. <laughs> You haven't ran in a circle for 1,100 times. <laughs> Not even once. I won't even run on a track. Um, no, I think it was hard here because um, I don't, I'll run on the road sometimes, but that's where I find that my body just kind of breaks down um, and I'll get, you know, like minor injuries, Achilles, that kind of stuff. Um, so a lot of our trails shut down at the beginning of um, the pandemic. And so it was really hard to figure out the right shoes so that I could run on the road. So I had to kind of rethink like my running game because I still wanted to run and I needed to get outside and, you know, obviously with a mask and everything too, like Steven had said. So luckily things have opened up um, and I was able to do a race two weekends ago now, I believe. Yeah. Up in Oregon, but Crushed you it. know this hmm? and you crushed it i believe i crushed it yep yep i got second female it was nice. a really hard day it was lots of rain and um i think it was even like mushy snow at the top of one of the peaks anyways i i just kind of have given myself a lot of grace this year everything was canceled i was planning to do an end of a like there's an ultra slam series that we have down here in san diego i was going to do that race 100 run um 100k in the fall and you know everything just got canceled and i decided you know what i'm just gonna chill this year and take a break and you know have had a lot of personal stuff going on my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes um and i'm now a single mom so just kind of dealing with the personal stuff and running when i can and giving myself grace when i can't so and fingers awesome. crossed next year we have more of a season. So we'll see. Oh, but if we don't, we'll figure it out. We'll just go on a bunch of adventures. That's what I want to do. We're going to be talking about future adventures. But first, we got to make it through our rapid fire questions. So they're going to be rapid questions, which require rapid answers. So I'll say the question. I'll say one of your names. And then the, the next person has to say it after the initial person says it. Okay. 
questions, concerns, cries of outrage. <laughs> Favorite low supply during a race, Laura. Gel. Honey sting of gel. Favorite low supply when you're sitting at home, Stephen. Welch's mixed fruit, the blue one. 18 grams of carbs. Oh, I know that one. <sighs> you're buying time. What's your answer? I know. <laughs> Apple juice box, because they're easy. The more you think about it, the more you go low. Uh, Trump or Biden? Just kidding. Oh. Do, you, do you prefer training before work or after work, Laura? After. Mm. You can't oh. see all this time. Both. Both. <laughs> and in the middle. <laughs> Would you rather race in sticky, humid heat or wet, clothing, piercing cold? Stephen. Easy. Wet. Give me the wet. Freezing cold. SoCal, hot. Would you rather have to treat a pesky persistent low or a pesky persistent high? Laura. Uh, they both are not fun, but probably the high because if it's a pesky persistent low, like you got to stop and walk through that to the high. Low. This, this, opposites this might be my favorite one. Oh boy if you could pick a famous person dead or alive oh, to no. either race alongside you or be your support crew person who would you pick stephen winston churchill Ooh, be really funny to see him running alongside me as my beta with a cigar <laughs> all right laura Oh, I have like a tie in my head. Can I have a tie? Uh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm both between Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle because I love their okay. books and their work and I would want, I'd be channeling their words anyways. So I'd want them there. Awesome. What is the number one song currently that is playing on repeat when you're training for a race? Stephen. Oh. I have no idea. I got so many playlists. Something by the Killers. Okay. Uh, probably something by Dua Lipa for me. By who? Or Bastille. Okay. Bastille is on my playlist a lot. All right. Okay. If someone knocked on your door right now and they offered you a potion that would immediately cure you of your diabetes, but with that, it would also erase all of your memories of experiences you had from your life with diabetes. So people you met, experiences you just had from navigating life with diabetes, would you drink the potion, Laura? No, because I wouldn't know you guys. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's, a, that's a bad question. My kid has it. No. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't open the door. <laughs> wouldn't open the door. Awesome. Awesome. All right, y'all. So what is that? What's coming up next? What's the next big thing coming down the pipeline? Yeah, tell us, Laura. What's the big race next year? <laughs> we are, maybe, hopefully, we are doing the world's toughest race eco challenge in Patagonia. If we ever hear back. <laughs> it's next year. <laughs> Elaborate on it, Stephen. What is it? Well, we get to ride horses. Uh, which none of us can do. We're going to be <laughs> rock climbing, which I don't know if I can do that. Um, 
think there's some trekking, so I'll be running. Um, there's going to be four of us, so it's us three with Michael and Tiffany, my wife, is going to be our crew. That's our team of five. We're a, we're a type one diabetes team, hoping to go to Patagonia. And I think it's, uh, I don't know how far is this race? 900 kilometers? Five? Is it, it's uh, crazy long. It's like a te- up to 10 day race. If you sleep, the clock keeps going. One of those things which we, apparently, me and Laura love. So <laughs> um, it's basically a wild adventure of multiple sports all around Patagonia. Um, I've been lucky to be down there five years ago. It's probably my favorite place in the world. No, not probably. It's my favorite place in the world. And dying to go back with these guys and to make it um, a type one diabetes crazy party which we'd also be celebrating the hundred years of the discovery of insulin. So fingers, fingers crossed. Fingers and across. We did the math that we collectively would have been living with diabetes for a hundred years. Didn't that add up? Yep. Yeah, that's true. We Very did. true. Yeah. It's cosmic. So we, they got to pick us. We're just waiting to find out. And um, other than running around, you know, San Diego and wherever here, we're waiting for the email from the from the eco challenge. So if you guys want to help us out and tell everyone that we should be picked, that's great. <laughs> Vote at the link below. Okay. Yeah, swipe yeah. up. So if if people want to follow y'all, what is the best? Uh, if they want to follow along with your adventures, what's the best way? What are your social media handles, Stephen? This is the easiest. I was going to say just run next to us, but you meant personally. <laughs> Um, you can find me at run diabetes. Um, pretty easy. That's Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook, not so much because that's not cool for the cool kids. I'm not TikToking yet. No YouTube, uh, do a bit of Strava under my name. How about you, Laura? I am at ultra runner underscore Laura. And I, I have a Twitter, but I don't really tweet. I am on Strava, uh, as Laura Dunn, and I, same, I'm not really, I have a Facebook, but I'm not on Facebook, so. Y'all, you are beyond inspirational. I know I told you too, but you inspired me to sign up for my first 50K, so we'll see how that goes down. Um, We're also excited to announce that you all are going to be speaking to our community with the Diabetes Family Connection on World Diabetes Day, giving a fireside chat to uh, light some fires under our community to get inspired to do really awesome things with type 1 diabetes. And that's going to be on Saturday, November 14th at 7 o'clock p.m. Thank you both so much for carving out some time and, and being with us tonight. And as always, the content in this video and podcast is for informational purposes only. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have seen or heard in this video or podcast. Reliance on any information provided during today's episode is solely at your own risk. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you on the next episode of The Leap. Thank you.